Once I stood in the night with my head bowed low in the darkness as black as could be. And my heart felt alone and I cried, oh Lord, don't hide your face from me. Hold my hand all the way, every hour, every day, from here to the great unknown. Take my hand, let me stand where no one stands Like a king, I may live in a palace so tall with great riches to call my own. But I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that's worse than being alone. Hold my hand all the way, every hour, every day, from here to the great unknown. Take my hand, let me stand where no one stands. song, isn't it? That's a good one. Where's Alyssa? Where's she at? Alyssa, where you at? Hey, you know when you started playing that song tonight, I thought Jen was playing. I'm not joking, and I'm, I'm not kidding a bit. I'm the preacher. I'm not supposed to lie, at least. <clears throat> I looked over there, and I was like, wow, that's a nice song. And I looked over, and I went, oh, wow, that's Alyssa playing. <laughs> uh, you're coming along really well, huh? You keep up the good work. That's really, really good work you're doing. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> well, we got some really up-and-coming stars, so to speak, in the music ministry. They're doing a great job working. And when I say stars, you know what I'm getting at. They don't want the glory, obviously. But, boy, they're doing a fabulous job. They're doing fabulous, just wonderful. <clears throat> just proud of them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 16 again. 
kind of pick up where we left off last week and just kind of keep on going here. And we'll get through it unless <clears throat> we got till eternity begins for us. I mean, it's already begun if you're saved, obviously, but I'm talking about not here on earth, you know. So here we go. <clears throat> but refuse profane and old wise fables. And exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. <clears throat> Again, we're dealing uh, just, you know, week in and week out about with, with Timothy here. And we know that Timothy, again, as we've said over and over again, is the protege or the, the son in the faith of this wonderful man of God by the name of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul made a tremendous investment in his life, as we've noted through these weeks. And as a result of that, it's paying off. And again, he was careful who he makes the investment in because he wanted to make sure that that investment would make good. And boy, did it ever. Timothy was an amazing young man, and he ultimately goes on to do an amazing work on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find him in Ephesus, and we find him pastoring a church that, well, from all indication, would seem like the perfect church. Because as we read over in the book of, of Revelation chapter 2, it, there's really no real indictment of them, with the exception of the fact that they had left their first love. And yet, may I say that when you read what takes place and all of the wonderful things that, <clears throat> that we read about them, you'd say, well, that's about as close to a perfect church as you could possibly have. But unfortunately, we know that there was apostasy that was starting to raise its ugly head in the church. And we know that it was only going to grow greater when the passing of the Apostle Paul took place. And so there was no doubt that Timothy had his work cut out for him. And well, I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter how it good a church seems on the surface, there are always things that have to be addressed and always things that have to be dealt with because you're dealing with people. And let's face it, we're not perfect. We're just human beings and we make mistakes along the way and sometimes we perceive things and we, don't, we misunderstand things and we don't get the, have the right perspective and we lose sight and lose track of what's most important and our priorities go up and down and change. And boy, I tell you what, we're just people. And so Timothy, he's getting a, mega dose of reality. He's having to deal with some things that, well, even a seasoned veteran would have had a rough time with. But this young man is facing them head on. And he's doing it with the tutelage of the Apostle Paul. And he's doing it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's doing it with the, the inspiration and the, the expectation of his, his, uh, his, his mentor, Paul, as well as the power of the Holy Ghost in his life. Boy, I tell you what, things are just happening and God's blessing and working and moving. And so anyway, being a young man, he's going to face some real challenges. 
And Paul warned Timothy that he would be facing some challenges. He also, again, warned him about that apostasy that he would have to stand faithful in, in the midst of, whether it be the Gentiles themselves who were teaching all kind of crazy doctrines, even as they do today, or, or even within the context of the church. You're going to have to stand. You're going to have to take a position. You're going to have to be strong. And he tells them to avoid some things. Don't, don't get caught up in discussing or, or uh, you know, talking about things that really aren't going to prove to be um, you know, profitable in eternity. Be careful you don't get bound and you don't get caught up in those things and that they steal your time and your attention. But instead, direct your attention and direct your time, you know, to the Word of God and direct your people to the Word of God. Instead of worrying about all this other stuff, let's see what the Bible says. Let's understand what the Word of God teaches. And that's what Timothy's trying to do. He's, he's trying to navigate through this, line, uh, this minefield of apostasy and heresy and this minefield of personalities and people. And he's trying to bring them together. And he's trying to make them one like the Bible says we ought to be. And, and so he's, he's doing his very best to say, if, if we're going to act like one, if we're really going to be on the same sheet of music, then we've got to get in the same book. And, and we've got to read the same notes. And So where do we find that? I mean, because everybody in the room today has an opinion about something. Every one of us have an opinion. You know, I mean, we could talk about a number of things tonight and, and everyone would say, well, I want to share my opinion. And then there's the first, well, here's what I believe and here's what I think and here's what I'm concerned about and here's what I believe we need to do. And everybody would have an opinion. And the truth is, is that your opinion is no more important than mine. Mine's no more important than yours. It's just an opinion. Like they say, it's kind of like noses. Everybody's got one, but nobody likes theirs. <clears throat> you know, and, and the fact is, is that is that we all have opinions. But so, so how do we get this thing on track? How do we ensure that everybody's on board and that everybody's of the same mindset, going in the same direction? He says, point them to this right here, the Word of God. Because this, this is where our, the, you know, the, the, the real root and the real foundation of the believer's life ought to lie. Uh, so if, if you say, well, I don't agree with this, well, then show me in the Bible where it's wrong. Timothy's saying, okay, you're bringing with you out of your paganistic, uh, uh, paganistic lifestyle, out of your immoral lifestyle, uh, out of your worship of Diane and others. He said, you're bringing all kind of philosophies and all kind of ideas into the Christian faith. So you've got these ideas. Well, I think we ought to do it this way because this is how we've always done it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. Where does it say that in the Bible? Why should we change it? Or why can't we change that? Or why can't we do that? Or why can we do that? I mean, you show me from the Word of God because we want to be on the same sheet of music and everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got an idea. And so Timothy's trying to bring this all together. And boy, the Apostle Paul's in his corner all the way. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God has given him leadership. <clears throat> and so as a young man pastoring a people, saved out of this very decadent, very wicked culture, embracing a horrible lifestyle in most cases, most of them being older than he was, he was sure to have those that were leery of his leadership and even critical of it. So Paul turns to his protege and he does his best to prepare him for that challenge. And as we began last week, we noticed that he encouraged him to uh, exercise himself in godliness. He said, you need to, you know, you exercise yourself in godliness, you know. 
And he makes it clear that although the bodily, uh, bodily exercise does have value, value in this life, godliness affects every area of your life. All areas. Godliness is a garment that stands out in one's life, regardless of your age, social standing, or walk in life. We noted John Phillips, the expositor and writer, commenting concerning godliness, said this, A physically handicapped saint is undoubtedly a better man than the one who is a magnificent physical specimen, but a moral leper. Do you realize what he just said there? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, here's this guy that's all dressed up. He's got muscles and he looks sharp and every girl's just falling, you know. (gasps) But he has no moral, which means he has no real character. Oh, whoa, whoa, did did you just say that, preacher? No, God did. God has a real problem with people that don't have any morality. God's got a problem with that. I don't care how good looking you are. I don't care how tall you stand. I don't care how strong you are. The fact is, is your real strength is measured and gauged by your moral strength. That's what God's concerned about. God isn't, isn't, uh, he's not impressed with our looks. He created us. He made us. He, 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 I mean, do you really think that you're better looking than Adam, gentlemen? The first man? And lady, there's not one of you that would probably even come close to Eve. I mean, are we kidding? If, if, if what we believe, the Word of God teaches, is if, if indeed we believe it and it's true, and I believe it is, then mankind's not getting better. It's only getting worse. And may I say that physically we're not getting better. We're only getting worse. People lived to be a 1,000 years old in those days. We only lived to be, what, 70 now. So something's wrong with our bodies, too. i got to tell you, God's worried about those things. That's what's most important to Him. So He says, and I love what Philip says. He's very wise. A physically handicapped saint is undoubtedly a better man than one who is magnificent physically, a magnificent physical specimen, but a moral leper. Godliness can grace a plowman's cottage as fittingly as a bishop's palace a barrack room, as well as the halls of Congress. Godliness brings beauty to pulpit and pew. It silences the scoffer, shames the profane, confounds the critic, exposes the hypocrite, and refutes the unbeliever. Bodily exercise, at best, profits a person for the 70 or 80 years of his lifespan. But godliness, which has its roots in eternity, outlasts the galactic empires of space. It comes from God and lasts forever. Now, good? Timothy would face a number of challenges along the way. And Paul was simply preparing him for those challenges. And so we continue with verse 10. And we look from 10 on now. Father, let's, we just ask, Lord, that you'd be with us now. We're begging you now, Father, to speak to our hearts and use the simplicity of your word, just this simple truths from your blessed book. Father, may our hearts be stirred and may we be, Father, exhorted and may we be encouraged, Father, to become better men and women for you. Instead of being good, Lord, help us to learn to be godly. How much we need your godliness. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. And so 1 Timothy 4.10, notice in our passage, and we've read it once, but let's read it again. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Paul seems to be alluding here to persecution that was gaining momentum in the, the, the Roman Empire at the time. And Nero, 
He was the emperor of Rome, more than likely at this time. If indeed, according to Usher, uh, these dates are correct, if Timothy was written around 65 AD, then that means Nero was indeed the emperor of Rome. Nero was a well-known emperor at the time. He was a a sadistic tyrant is what he really was. Um, He was known for his excesses. He was known for his immorality. Um, He disregarded the opinion of the establishment. He could have cared less what anybody said. He did things the way he wanted to do it, and it just didn't matter to him whether you liked it or you didn't. It was said that he would go out in the night and he would just murder somebody to murder somebody. But then not only that, but even worse, he attempted to murder his own mother. It failed, of course. She swam to shore. So he sent his guards after her who finished the job. He murdered his own mother. In 64 AD, Nero would set Rome on fire. There was a particular architectural you know, uh, building of sorts and, and, and this whole idea that he had for a portion of Rome. And some say that he literally allowed Rome to be burned and he, allowed, he, he started the fire, basically, so that he could make room for this particular architectural structure. What in the world's going on? This guy's crazy. 75% of Rome is destroyed because of this act. So what's he do? He blames it on the Christians. A rather obscure sect at the time, a sect that was growing in popularity and strength, he blames it on the Christians. And of course, you know what follows, even greater persecution than ever. Beginning his reign at the age of 17, he would ultimately run out of town before taking his own life, be run out of town before taking his own life at the age of 31. Imagine that. 17 to 31. He dies at 31 years of age. He takes his own life. They were going to flog him to death if they found him. (laughs) So he just killed himself. Actually got help to do that. But nonetheless, he took his life. In our passage here, the Bible says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. The word translated Savior in the passage here is used of the emperor by those who follow the state religion. It's interesting how many times in Scripture, you know, if you understand the context of the passage, you can glean so much more from it. And the fact is, is that in those days, the emperor of Rome considered himself a god and a savior. And in this particular case, as Paul was speaking to to, to his protege, Timothy, as he's talking to him concerning the church and concerning the people of God, he says to him, reminds him, who is the Savior of all men? The living God is the Savior. Not Nero, not any, any Roman emperor, but God himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians who refuse to acknowledge Nero or any other Roman emperor's Deity or position as Savior would be brutally persecuted. So, as a result, believers suffered tremendous reproach. I mean, they trusted in the living God, however, though. They never quit, never stopped believing, never allowed the pains of persecution to keep them from 
trusting in the living God, from serving the Lord. Can you imagine being unjustly accused of burning down a city? Having it said that you were murdering babies and eating them. What would you think about those things? You would be outraged, would you not? And then as people come chasing after you, the pagans and those that that have nothing to do with God chase you down and ultimately persecute you and even kill you for your faith and your belief, how long would it be before you'd give up, quit? How long would I hold out? And we're all bent out of shape when somebody tells us that they don't want to hear the gospel and we just pass the track and they go, I don't want your track. And we act like, "How boy, they offended me. How could they be so, so harsh and so nasty and so mean? Well, really, that's how we act sometimes. We're, we're so shocked by that. But these would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ no matter how viciously they were being persecuted. They just stayed faithful. The word translated suffer reproach or that phrase there can be rendered are reviled. It conveys the idea of defamation of character. You've heard that statement. You know, we file lawsuits of defamation of character. Someone trying to run us down. Someone trying to say anti-positive things about us, negative things about us, things that are not true. And that's all that the Christians were taught. That's, that's all they did. They said negative things and, and, and untrue things about these believers. Christians were being falsely accused for all kinds of horrible crimes. But they remained faithful. In 1 Timothy 4.10 again it says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. Now notice he says the Savior of all men. That's kind of confusing. Somebody could point that out to you and say, Well, see, everybody's saved because he's the Savior of all men. And it, you, could, you can understand why they would, might be misunderstand that. But what he's really getting at there is that he's the Savior of all men in the sense that he stays his hand. That he doesn't punish sinners immediately. That he doesn't give them their just desert or reward right now. For instance, think about Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, turn if you would over to the book of Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Look what it says here about them. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> but a certain man named Ananias was with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. <clears throat> Excuse me. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? By the way, he wasn't upset with him because he kept back part of the price. He was upset with him because he promised to give the whole and he only gave half. That's why there was a problem here. That's why he lied. He told God he'd give the whole, but he only gave half. So he lied. He said he'd give the whole, but he only gave half. So he lied. That's what God had a problem with. See, you don't have to give the whole in that sense. But if you promise to give it and you don't, then you lie to God. See, when you promise to give the whole and you only give half and you tell God you're going to do that, you lie to God. You don't lie to the pastor. 
You don't lie to the church. You don't lie to your friends beside you. You lie to God. You get that? We don't take seriously sometimes what we say. I just want to encourage you to be honest with God from now on. Someone says, oh, who isn't honest? I don't know. I'm just trying to say. Maybe I caught you in something. Maybe your hand was in a cookie jar just now, and you went, oh, I'm not going to even go there, God. I don't know. Save yourself a lot of hurt and heartache. Praise the Lord, though. Watch what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. We're glad that doesn't happen to us. Watch this. <laughs> this is unbelievable. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Maybe he lied to the Holy Ghost. See, earlier he talked about the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost is God then. He's as much God as Jesus Christ is. He's as much God as God is. Notice he goes on, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That's a simple way of saying he died. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young, why would they be so afraid? I'm going to tell you what. If somebody dropped dead here, somebody, if somebody stood up and blasphemed God in the middle of this service, and they just dropped dead, wouldn't you get a little nervous? I mean, honestly, what, I would. I'd be like, whoa, we, oh, gosh, we better act right. <laughs> You know what I mean? Wouldn't it kind of get, a, get your attention? It's getting some people's attention here. All of a sudden, these guys are like, whoa, we ain't playing around no more. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, and the young men arose. This is great. And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, buried him. Thank God for young men. But anyway, <clears throat> so guys, you know what you got to do if that happens here, okay? My grandma, when I was going to Salvation Army, she used to sit there, and man, I mean to tell you, we'd be in the middle of the Salvation Army service, like seeing my grandma's like, oh, oh, oh. And we're all like, whoa, what just happened? And next thing you know, they're bringing, I'm not supposed to be laughing about this, but you got to know my grandma. But anyway, they bring in the cart, you know, and they load her up on this thing and haul her on out while everybody's just standing around watching. And you say, that's nothing to laugh about. Well, if you knew my grandma, you'd know it's crazy. But anyway, she's not with us anymore. It finally... One day it actually happened. But uh, <clears throat> it will in all our lives, won't it? You know, sooner or later. But I thought, thinking, you know, I mean, that used to shock people. You know, you get scared, right? I remember being a kid seeing that. I'm like, oh, no, Grandma's dying. I mean, I was thinking that as a kid. And it just scared the life out of you watching somebody lose life right in front of your eyes. Now, in Grandma's case, she popped right back up, down, and she's fine again. Uh, you know, that was just another heart attack she had. But... Um, you understand where I'm going with that? It wasn't really a heart attack, but it was a heart attack. So anyway, um, <clears throat> so nonetheless, forget it. So um, <clears throat> it was scary, put it that way, okay? If it really happened, that would really be a problem. So verse 8, and so Peter answered, watch it, and, and, and it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. She said, Yea, for so much. <laughs> oh, man, wrong answer. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. She fell, the, she, the, then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, <laughs> found her dead, carried her forth, buried her by her husband. 
I wish they'd do that today. It'd be a lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever looked at prices of plots and parcels lately, it'd be better if they just take us out of here and bury us somewhere. That'd be a lot cheaper and a lot better. But um, we see here a situation that's pretty, pretty scary, really. I mean, here you are sitting in church, or you're, you're hanging around. Next thing you know, this, these people supposedly lie to the Holy Ghost. That's what you just heard that they did, and boom, drop dead. Now, this case was an exception to the rule. We, we don't see this happening all the time. Obviously, that's an exception. Hold on, though. That doesn't mean that we just neglect it. It doesn't mean we just take it for granted that we just act like, well, big deal then. I can lie to God. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. That's the, matter of fact, that's the opposite of what he was trying to get across. Ananias and Sapphira were made examples concerning holiness, the holiness of the Spirit of God, to make sure you understood this is God we're dealing with, and, and his, He is holy and He is righteous. And, and then also they're an example in the sense of how serious sin is to God. You don't mess around with sin, man. That's what he's trying to express to them. He's trying to make it clear to them. And so he uses this as an example to the early church to say, listen, I am serious about sin. And I want you to understand right now, my Holy Spirit is God and he is holy. You don't lie to him. But it was an exception to the rule because we don't see that. There's not one of us that hasn't lied to God. Now, if you haven't, good for you. But you know what? We've probably lied to God about something. Oh, Lord, I'll be there. I'll, okay, I'll be at the service. I told the pastor I'd be there. You know what? Make commitments to God, really. See, our word's supposed to be good. And God says, keep your word. Therefore, if you don't keep it, then you've sinned against God. So we've all sinned against God in that sense. We've all said we were going to do something or give something or be somewhere or whatever it might be, and we didn't follow through with it. Thank God, though. Watch this, and this is so help, so important, and, and, and really... Thank God that God doesn't punish sin that way today all the time. But that's the exception. Because if he punished our sins the very moment we committed them, if we got the full penalty of, our, of, of what we deserved right away on the onset, then the human race would quickly end. It'd be gone just like that. All people live under suspended sentence while God's grace holds back his wrath. Every one of us, every human being, saved and lost alike, none of us get what we truly deserve. And it's withheld. It's, it's withheld. We don't get it in this life, at least. We live under a suspended sentence. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. See, there's already a sentence of death. It's a suspended sentence, though. We're just not getting what we deserve right this minute. And you know, what's really taking place is that while his wrath is suspended, he's actively seeking us. He's seeking mankind while this, this wrath is suspended, while this judgment is being put off. He's giving us opportunity to come to him to ultimately settle our soul salvation, to get our sin dealt with. The Holy Spirit's within the world and he's dealing with every person everywhere. The Bible says in John 16, 8, And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus said, if I don't leave here, then He can't come. And if He don't come, we got some problems because He's going to come. And when He does come, He's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Because the fact is, is that we're already condemned as we speak. And God is just simply withholding that, 
that, that punishment, that wrath right now. It's a suspended judgment. And the Holy Spirit is out there giving every man, every boy, every girl, every woman an opportunity to deal with it before it's too late. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, in other words, the sacrifice of Calvary is sufficient for all men, all women. It's sufficient. And we're all brought under that umbrella of protection, so to speak, for the time being until we reach the point of accountability, that point of decision. When people believe, God's salvation becomes fully operational in their soul. It, takes, it, 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 it starts working completely. The sacrifice of Calvary is sufficient and it will fully and forever handle the problem of sin. Now, here's the thing. It's good for everyone. It's sufficient for everyone. And when the apostle says, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, literally, he is saving mankind every day in a sense that he's withholding his judgment. He could kill every last one of us immediately, send us right to hell, and he'd be justified in doing it. But he withholds that judgment. But notice he says, who's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. <laughs> especially of those that believe. Why does he say that? Because we, of all men, are not just seeing God's wrath and God's punishment withheld in this life. We are seeing it withheld eternally. Paul then goes on in four chapter 4, verse 11, to say, these things command and teach. What things? Well, the things that have al he's already shared with Timothy to this point. Those things. <clears throat> Timothy was to instill in the people of God the truths that Paul had brought to his attention, the truths that Paul had made clear to him. Note that he wasn't just to teach them the truth. According to the word of God, he was to command it. Isn't that interesting? He says, these things command and teach. So that means that he was to express them with authority. He's to command them. These truths were not to be viewed as take it or leave it. Try it out if you like. Put on that for just put it on for just a few and see if it fits nice for you. Now that wasn't the, the idea. That's not where it stood. No, they were to be heeded. They were to be kept. Timothy would have to counter any apostate tendencies with this Pauline doctrine, this doctrine that he had received. He was saying, listen, you're going to face a number of, 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 of things that are going to be unscriptural. The only way you fight unscriptural things is with Scripture. The only way you deal with, with worldly thought and worldly perspective is to deal with spiritual perspective and godly thought. You know, we're so quick to want to try to make everybody feel good and 
not offend anybody. And, I, and I'm all for trying to be that way. But let me tell you something. If we would just stop giving our opinion when people have an issue and we'd start opening the Word of God, then we wouldn't have to worry so much about offending people because it wouldn't be us offending them. The problem is we've got to know this book. We've got to know where to go and how to use it. And, and I mean, it's a sword. Now, I don't know about you, but I've not, I've not worked out with swords. I've not spent time trying to learn how to be a swordsman. If you came to me right now and you had a sword in your hand, you threw me a sword, and you'd say, all right, let's go ahead and sword fight. I'd be like, this isn't going to last long. I mean, about the only thing I could do is go like this, as fast as I could, and you'd be like, I mean, I'd just be like, I don't know anything about swords. I've not, I've not worked at it. I've not practiced. I have no experience. Question. How well do you know and use the sword? I'm not asking you, have you memorized three or four scriptures in your life? I'm not asking you, have you read through the Bible? I'm asking you, if someone says to you, why do you honestly believe that when a person gets saved, they're always saved? Can you take them to about three or four verses? Can you open your Bible and say, well, let me show you why that's the case. Right here and right here. Can you do that? See, that's what our family needs. That's what our friends need. That's what the world needs. And someone says, well, that's what preachers are supposed to do. Well, there's, not, there's a lot of people in the world for preachers to reach. And if I recall last time we talked, we learned that you're not just a member of a church. You are the church, which means that the commission that was given to the church was given to you personally. That means you're responsible to reach yours. And you're really responsible to reach the world. And so am I. And that's what Paul is trying to help Timothy. Listen, Timothy, he's saying, listen, you're going to have to give them this truth. And if you're going to counter apostasy, you're going to have to do it with doctrine. You can't just reason it out. You're going to have to show them from the Word of God. And it, you're not just going to have to, as he puts it in verse uh, 10, uh, 11, excuse me, he, he says, um, wait, I must have turned. Oh, I'm, I flipped over to Hebrews. <laughs> I don't know why I threw over there real quick. But you're going to command and you're going to teach these truths. You need to command them. And so Timothy would know Paul's views. He would know the word of God in that sense. I mean, Timothy hung out with Paul, the apostle. It, what, what dictates and what truly directs the church today? The Pauline epistles. We rightly divide the word of God. I mean, we don't run back to Genesis and try to figure out how to run the church. We go to the New Testament. The New Testament's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John either. It's not till the death of the testator that we find the New Testament. So in reality, it's not till later in those books that we even enter into the New Testament. And then we see the book of Acts, and that's where really things begin to unfold. And we see a transition from Jew to Gentile, from the, from the law to, to grace. We see that transition taking place. And God's, God's dealing with a people now and, and individuals instead of just nations. And so we see the New Testament. And with that transition come a lot of, a lot of turmoil and a lot of change. I mean, it was difficult on people, and they had a hard time handling it. But they finally worked through it, of course. But about now, this is really taking root now. 
And Paul's telling them, listen, you've watched how I've been used to start churches. You've seen what I've done. And by the way, that's how it's supposed to be done. If, if, if you, you notice, really, if you take the time to notice, in Romans chapter 16, and we're going to close this out, but in Romans chapter 16, we find out that Paul was in Rome with, I mean, uh, Timothy was in Rome with Paul. And he was in Rome when he was writing to the Corinthians. And then we find Timothy mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16. We find him mentioned in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. So what does that say to us? Here's what it says to us. Stand up, Chase. Here's what it says. This young man, he might be young, but what we're going to see is, is that this young man and the Apostle Paul, they traveled together. He watched Paul lead men and women to Christ. He listened to him preach. He watched how he served the Lord and how he built churches and how his compassion went out to people who were hurting and in need and how he reached out to the, the pagans and how he reached out to the Romans and how he reached out to people who literally hated the Christians and yet he still continued to demonstrate love and compassion like Christ did. And this young man was with him through all of that in thick, through thick and thin. Watch. It doesn't do any good for you to tell somebody how to get things done. You've got to show them. You've got to take them and let them walk with you a while. Don't kid yourself. Go ahead and open a Bible and give some people just a few verses and say, I trained them and I taught them. You haven't trained anybody yet. This is how you train people according to the Bible. You take them with you. You go out soul winning with them. You take them to a hospital with you. You, you go ahead and, and you, let them, you, you let them watch you deal with people and love people. And they go and they see how you're doing it and they watch you doing it. And pretty soon you're saying, hey, can you give me a hand with this? And can you give me a hand with that? And next thing you know, they're doing bits and pieces and parts. That's how it ultimately works. And so Timothy, he walked with Paul. Timothy might have been a young man in a pulpit. But Timothy had a lot of experience. Timothy knew much more than those older people in that church ever thought he or dreamed he could. He had seen it, he experienced it, and he did it. One of the most ignorant things we can do is discount and disregard a young man just because of his age. That's an ignorant thing to do. Not only is it ignorant, but it's unscriptural. Next week as we begin to look, we may touch on this, but well, we're going to note a man by the name of David. And we're going to note Timothy and how Timothy was to be an example of the believers. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you King Saul didn't think David was big enough to go up against Goliath. They mocked that young man too. He was just 17. But that didn't keep him from bringing a giant down. And all I'm saying is sometimes we do not have God's perspective. And just because we're older doesn't mean we have or understand more about this book. Let's not discount some of these young men and what they can do for God. Let's not treat them like little kids. Let's expect them to be men of God. Let's expect them to grow up. And if they show some maturity, then let's let them step in and take some responsibility. Amen. But we thank God for His goodness. And so... We close, and Timothy 
had a mentor that was concerned about him and really tried to equip him and prepare him for what he was facing. So he warned him of the present coming apostasy. He tells him to refuse profane and old wise fables and to keep his, keep his and his eyes focused on, on the truth. He tells him to exercise himself rather into godliness. And he, he goes on to encourage him to remain faithful in the work, to labor and to suffer reproach while trusting in the living God. And next week we'll see that he's going to help him. Say, be an example. Be an example. You want to win those people, then show them you're the real deal. And that's what we're going to see next week. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this.